City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. Anyway, that's it. It's City Limits. It's the fourth Wednesday of the month. We've got nothing specific, but that little giggle we just heard was from Eugenia Subchenko, who's been away hello. for three months travelling the world, and she's back. Uh, hello, everyone. I, I'd win when the brekkie show's hung over, poor young woman, and she's uh, she's panelling for us because Meg's away this week. She's headed over to Perth, but she's back next week. So I'll have the whole team together next week. It's yeah, that'll be like a footy exciting. team with ins and outs, isn't it? But anyway, Meg's out this week, and Eugenia's in. Yeah, substitute Meg. <laughs> yeah, and great trip. Yeah, wonderful. Um, yep. Bit too long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was impatient to get back to 3CR. Oh, of course, you miss City Limits. Naturally, most, most Wednesday mornings you're over there, even though with the time gap, you'd be thinking, God, yeah. I wish I was on here on City Limits right now rather than enjoying myself here wherever I am. I know, I just kept waking up at 4 a.m. on Wednesdays. Must have thinking, been. There's something I should be doing. Yeah. Cup of tea, everyone? Uh, yeah, I'd love I'll one. pour some tea over here. Um, radio and um, on the show today, well, we're going to, in fact, just have our usual rave about a few things, and then I'm going to talk to you, um, Eugenia, because uh, you know, putting on your plan as an architect hat, I want you to tell me some of the things you might have picked up around the world at various places. <laughs> um, I feel I've, I was on my way here. I felt like I was preparing for an exam or something. <laughs> to yeah, well, process everything I've been through in the last few um, months to tell you about it. In, 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 in being in comedy yesterday, I teed up because the other guest on the show about half past is Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation, who's their mm-hmm. anti-nuclear campaigner. Because last week, a Liberal member of Parliament called Amanda Stoker, a Queensland senator, had a think piece, as they call them, and uh, when I was journalising, they were called think pieces. Um, and it uh, shows she can't actually. Um, it's, actually, it's pushing forward um, the fact that uh, uh, nuclear is a clean energy future is the headline, so you can work it out from there where it goes. So I'm going to get Dave to talk about it, but he did say he'd have to be up burning the midnight oil to work out his responses to her logical arguments. So, yeah, right. Hopefully yeah, he's, um, so he's been toss- he's tossing and turning on that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now hopefully he'll be able to respond to her brilliant arguments about uh, nuclear. We might even raise some of the questions raised overnight about the government's new energy policy, which seems to be the old energy policy exactly as it was. Uh, but anyway, we'll talk about those things. I'm going to have a sip of tea now. Here we go. <laughs> mm. ah. Now, on... Oh, hang on. I've just... Made, I've got to do something here. Listen, as I haven't got my reading glasses out, and it means that I can have all these things in front of me, but I can't read them. As he turns away from the mic and makes the whole show <laughs> go totally up in the air. Anyway, um, here we go. Reading glasses, which are still falling apart. Um, now, the Herald Sun, we always kick off with something good from the Herald Sun. Good and news to start with? Yes, yes. And, and yesterday, well, this week, in fact, almost every day they have someone, some model or whatever, at one of the big marquees for Cup Week, talking about how wonderful it's going to be and how luxurious and what she's wearing, who made her shoes, etc., etc. Mm, gosh, it's that time of year. Right? Yeah, which is why they just can't 
cover things like worker marches and things very much no. because you know they're just yeah. not busy. You know they're just not good enough. And 150,000 workers marching for better wages. Well, you know what's that com- <laughs> compared to the rich and powerful yeah. in the Marquis at Flemington next Thank week? Thank God we've got three sides Yeah, that's right. But this was a nice little story yesterday, a very touching story. Sam Newman, whom I haven't watched in years, I just can't bring myself to watch him on that footy show thing. But nonetheless, apparently they're thinking of winding up the show, poor old Sam. But Shane Warne and Sam played golf together on Monday, photo of them playing golf together, big thing, give us our own TV show. And they thought maybe they could have their own own program. And they're obviously thinking... um, you know they they they're thinking pretty um, pretty strongly on this one because they've come up with some brilliant titles like tonight live with Shane and Sam now that's <laughs> taken a bit of thought hasn't it that's <laughs> whipped up a bit of thought on yeah. that one but I what kind of um, hard biting current affairs issues they're going to be covering oh it'd be a deep show it'd certainly be great for the brain um, and they um, but. Wayne says, look, it's, you know, what's your name? Shane says, and he's Shane Warne. Shane says <laughs> that um, if um, they get let him go, it'll be awful because he says, Sam is Channel 9. Sam is everything Channel 9. And I thought, he is right because Sam does reflect what Channel 9's all about. <laughs> um, so, in fact, yeah, he's, I mean, for once, Shane got it right. Uh, maybe we wouldn't... Uh, yeah. Think for the right reasons, but he got it right. I mean, if there were ever two men in Australia that needed more airtime, I think, yeah, I think they might be them, right? Uh, oh, yeah, definitely, and Sam particularly, because the bit, why, I mean, apart from anything else, the part, when I, I used to watch it in his early days, and I presume it still goes on, he does these street interviews where he gets people who have, you know, who are not all that bright and really t- makes mockery of them, and that's the most awful thing about it, I think, but mm. anyway... Now, this bit, though, this is getting down to something a little more serious, in fact, a lot more serious. But a couple of weeks ago, when the government came out with a, I don't know if you put up with it, the, the report, it hasn't actually been released yet, but it got leaked, the report on religious freedom arising out of the same-sex marriage debate. Mm. And Lyle Shelton was then the head of the Australian Christian Lobby, whatever it's called, and he's now come out on this one, and he's he's been really good. He says that he doesn't believe kids should be expelled from school if they are gay, um, right. which is very good. He says, but only if they actually act on an impulse by having sex. Oh, if they have sex, they get expelled. Oh my gosh! Um, which is pretty good. Yeah, no, no, that's I think that's quite reasonable from the old uh, the old Lyle. Um, yeah, just throw them out if they have sex. But anyway, um, he. Um, he does go on to say the Morrissey government should absolutely go beyond what was recommended in the report. It has confirmed my worst fear, and that is that life is going to be very different in a post-same-sex marriage world. And now we've, mm. all, we've all worried about this, I'm sure, haven't we? I mean, it's been on our minds every mm. day. Freedom is freedom, and if freedoms have been lost, they need to be restored. Now, that last bit I can't quite catch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly whose freedoms he talking exactly. about? <laughs> My freedom, not your freedom. <laughs> That's, that seems to be the case. That does seem yeah. to be the case. But apparently, I imagine that. What if, what if heterosexual kids had sex at school? Would that would they be expelled mm. under his principle? I I don't know. Yeah. 
Maybe they'd get a gold star or something. Um, well, maybe, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, well anyway, um, that's but sorry, that's sorry. Sorry to interrupt. I can tell you from coming from a heteroset from a <laughs> a mixed school that no, <laughs> no reward system in place. No, no reward system. No expulsion for students. No. Yeah, okay, right. Great. Okay. We won't go Fantastic. into more detail of how you know that, but uh, <laughs> but thanks. <laughs> okay. Um, now, this bit, again, it's um, following things like yesterday's march, etc. We're seeing all the time the coppers getting more and more powers and, you know, more looking more paramilitary, more powers to get people, more weapons to get people at protests, etc. Yeah. Um, they've now got a new high-risk, or new um, van. These are called... Um, I don't know what they call them, they've got no name for them, I don't think, but they're to be used to respond to high-risk events, out-of-control parties and major brawls. High-risk events are things like the protests that we attend. Yeah, right. Um, it's just by definition. <laughs> Expression they of can, political freedom. Yeah, <laughs> the van can carry eight special tactical officers known as public order response team, right, as, as opposed to two previously. The impact will give the operational response unit an, an increased capability to swiftly intervene, split infinitive, in any public event where people act in a manner that puts the rest of the community or police in danger, acting Superintendent Greg Barras said. He said community could expect to see the transporters at major events, rallies and demonstrations across the state. The team will also help with natural disaster, etc. But he mentions mm. demonstrations specifically. Yeah. and uh, it's definitely at the front of the list, isn't it? Yeah, it's right up there. That's what it's all about anyway, isn't yeah, it? So keeping Australia are. safe. And apropos yesterday's march... Um, the Kelly Oda Wire, our wonderful minister, well, she was minister for something to do with Treasury and now she's industrial relations. And um, while Closely you're away... fields. Yeah, that's right. Well, while you were away, she appointed a bloke called Graham Watson as her, um, as her chief advisor. He had been at the Fair Work Commission, ex-Freehills, which is the biggest legal company in the country that, that is anti-worker. It drew mm -hmm. up work choices for the government. And Michaela Cash was also an ex-partner of Freehills and she mm. became Industrial Relations Minister. <laughs> Watson resigned last year from the board as Vice President of the Fair Work Commission because he said it was too loaded toward workers and they, they just it was absolutely <laughs> biased and he couldn't stand the bias. And someone actually found a decision he made in favour of a union or worker at one stage out of the hundreds he did, but anyway, that's by the by. He's now her advisor. He's viciously anti-worker. And he... Um, Anyway, there was, there was also a case, I think we raised it a couple of weeks ago, where a worker was actually granted um, annual leave because he was because of the time he was doing, the, the court considered him to be permanent, not casual, but his boss had him as casual. And there's been appeals against that. But there's a case currently before the, um, before the board, a mob called, a labour hire firm called Workpack, which is complaining that it, it would be double dipping because there's a loading on workers' salaries um, for if you're casual mm. for go, for going without things like superannuation and sick leave and all the other things, including including um, annual leave. But of course, well, I'll come back to the other point, this other point shortly. But it's currently before the court. And last week, Kelly Oda Wire. Um, intervened and became a party to the dispute along with the employer. 
um, mm-hmm. to say that workers shouldn't um, get double dip, etc., etc. And uh, she says uh, the ruling uh, said the when the other bloke was owed annual leave despite casuals typically receiving loading, etc leading to claims of double dipping. The judgment has ramifications for all sectors that use regular casuals, including retail and health care, with employers estimating it could mean back pay for 60% to 85% of all casual employees. In other words, that figure's important, isn't it? In other words, under the ruling, it would indicate that 61 to 85% of people employed as casuals should be employed permanently. Right. Because they're running, they're actually permanently, you know, employed. The hours they serve means yeah. they're actually permanent employees. They're, I mean, that's how's that a, for a statistic? Up to 80%. That's right. That's and they, the bosses are saying, well, that's awful, have to pay all those people. But in fact, what it shows is all those people should be being paid. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway. They haven't, haven't been paid. No. Up until now. <laughs> that's right. Just that little minor fact. <laughs> um, but anyway, Kelly said she had decided to make the Commonwealth a party in the new case as it would consider whether an employer can be required to pay twice for the same workplace entitlement. It is important for me to intervene in this case given the considerable concern across Australia's three million small businesses and given the impact it could have on job creation and existing jobs. And on she goes. So anyway, she's intervening. Isn't it good to know? Yeah, I mean, it's Uh, always interesting to think think of how much focus small businesses get over the over the rights of the individual workers, you know? Yes, well, they're the, they're the heart of the country. Mm. You, know, you know that, don't you? Mm. Um, <clears throat> Never mind about the actual people. No, she says clarity and uh, certainty strengthens compliance, which I am sure both employers and employees would welcome. So employees are going to welcome having their wages taken off, and that's mm. good. Um, but mm. what it also <laughs> implies, I mean, it's, it's assuming, speaking of compliance, that all these employers in the gig economy and casualization and everything else are paying the correct salary vis-a-vis what they're doing, Mm. even if it's the casual rate, whereas we know probably the vast majority are paying way below. So Mm. they're not even getting the 20, you know, their loading is irrelevant because they're not getting it. Mm. Um, Michelle O'Neill, the new president of the ACTU, um, accused accused Paul Kelly of intervening against workers' rights and pay and undermining the ruling. Big businesses in the labour hire industry have been caught abusing the casual classification and they're trying to escape paying working people the money they're owed. Kelly O'Dwyer is helping them keep the myth of the permanent casual alive and to strip workers of their rights. What a terrible thing to say about poor Kelly. He's mm. just trying to clarify the law. Good but on him. Yes, that's right. But anyway... Um, Martin Ferguson, the former ACTU president who now works for the mining and other industries, um, he came out very strongly. Being an ex-ACTU, you know he'd, he'd, he'd certainly defend the workers. He said the decision was unfair to business and went against long-standing principles. So oh, no. there's great support for you. Yeah. Good old seems Marty. Like, seems like they're all on the same side, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, good old Marty. Well, I'm gonna, look, I'm going to – in fact, I've got more stuff here, but we won't, I'm going to talk to you now. Um, oh, dear. Yeah. You're the other <laughs> guest. I'm going to have a sip of tea and talk to you. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. Mm. That sip of tea means we can now talk. Um, <laughs> your your right. this is sufficiently warmed and well, caffeinated. I said to you yesterday I was going to talk to you. Is there anything you wanted to write, you thought of specifically that's worth, to, you know, that you want to talk about, things you saw that were really important? Or? Uh, yeah, well, I was kind of thinking about my, my travels and, and what I've seen related to all our topics of transport and housing and, and energy and all that. So I can just talk about that yep. for a little bit if you want. Yep, yep. <laughs> 
Um, so that's, that's, what, that's what I want you to do. Yeah. yeah. So the first thing that came to mind was my trip to London. Um, so I was in just in Europe for a couple of months, um, and in, I was pretty excited to go to London and see all of the social housing that's that's still around this, the whole city from the fifties and sixties and seventies. It was such a striking difference to to Melbourne's landscape. You know, all these buildings um, that you know, as, as an architect looking at them, you can see this real idealism in their design and a kind of belief that, that housing for people was really important and, and could be, mm. you know, a sustainable way to, to build the city. Um, yeah, plus there's such interesting buildings, these futuristic <laughs> 60s things studded around. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it was such a treat. Uh, and also in the UK, I, I was talking to a friend who works in a kind of community um, urbanism space, and that was really exciting. There seems to be a lot of... Um, uh, yeah, a lot more of a culture of, of that in the UK than there is in Australia. So uh, community groups that get together and um, agitate for um, better places, um, even to the point of kind of starting up initiatives in their own neighbourhoods, which is something that happens a little bit in Australia, but I think it would be great to see a lot a lot more of that. And I'd be really interested to to investigate or even get somebody in to talk on the show about mm. why, why that might be, what kind of, you know, like policies or I don't know what, what, what are the conditions that enable that what to are some examples of how it works over there uh, so I visited a lot of community gardens that were kind yep. of started up by by residents um, things like food swaps and, and markets uh, there was this one particular initiative that I found really interesting uh, in the far east of London I think it was called participatory city and the idea was that uh, to, to kind of investigate what a neighbourhood would look like if sharing was a much more kind of common um, thing that happened between neighbours. So that means things like shared kitchens or uh, shared stuff like a tool library or shared kind of things. Um, mm. Like, I don't know, I think they even had beehives. So I guess the idea was that um, if, if people can get together and share a lot of these kind of really everyday activities that everyone has to do but are kind of maybe a bit of a chore or a bit boring when we do them by ourselves or in our own families, yeah. that could become an opportunity for um, kind of connections to form or between the neighbourhood. Or expensive equipment that, um, you know, instead of one person buying it, they all buy it and share it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and this particular neighbourhood where they were trialling it was um, was had a quite, quite a high population of recent migrants, so I think that was um, really useful for them to be able to, you know, save costs when they'd recently arrived in the UK and... Yeah, mm. and meet other people in the neighbourhood as well. Yeah. We're going to be, in fact, on the show next week, we're going to be talking to the group that organises uh, community gardens in, in public housing estates yeah. here. So we'll yeah, pick, so some we of can, that, pick some of that up next week. Yeah, yeah, see, talk to them about it. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Yeah. What else? What else? Um, well, public transport. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Spent a fair amount of time in Berlin, which if anyone's been to that city, <laughs> seems like a transport paradise. <laughs> 24-hour mm. trains going everywhere you like. Well, riding up here this morning when I came across out of from Edinburgh Gardens across um, the top of Smith Street, uh-huh. in the block from from Queen's Parade down to Alexander Parade, there were three long double trams in a row Banked stuck up. in traffic. Mm. Yeah, yeah so it somehow stops that doesn't seem to happen lines. in Germany. I don't no, know why. No. Maybe they figured out perhaps, some secret. Perhaps they keep them away from cars. Of course, oh, it's interesting. That's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, on mm. that on that topic, one thing I did notice wandering around the streets of. Um, Lots of European cities. I mean, I'm thinking of a couple of cities I went to in Italy. 
There are so few cars compared to the Australian city. Yes, it's just yes. astounding. And people wonder, you know, where does this kind of lovely European culture of sitting in the streets and eating or drinking and chatting mm. come from? And, you know, I for one am, am much happier sitting on a quiet pedestrian street than I am on, on like Smith Street full of cars. So... Something to think about for the city's planners, perhaps? Yes, it's uh, well, the, the yellow line, I mean, probably you're young enough, but yellow, the yellow line that you see on the street, the sort of where, the, where you can ride your bike and know you're pretty safe from car mm-hmm. hitting you, or car door getting you, that was designed originally. It was called the fairway, I think it was called originally, mm. and it was, it was designed to keep trams and cars apart. And, and it, Interesting. It was illegal. I don't know if the law's ever been changed, but when it was brought in, it was made illegal for cars to go outside that line if there was a tram in the vicinity and go, so to give trams a free run. And, in fact, I was then a local government representative on the, whatever it was called, the, anyway, the state board that supervised that. Um, and every meeting I would raise the fact that it's not being policed Mm-hmm. And ironically, the reason it wasn't being policed was because the Transport Workers Union representative on that board opposed it because he said it interferes with the rights of our members to do U-turns and all that sort of stuff. And so it's never, ever been policed, but it was yeah, brought right. in for that very purpose to That's separate. That's so interesting. Yeah. It seems sort of like a, uh, like it could have been just as a gradual cultural shift and if everyone kind of agreed to respect that again. Yeah, the, the only one that works is the one on Nicholson Street where we, um, I, mean, I use we loosely because I wasn't responsible personally, but where Fitzroy Council, the time I was on it, mm-hmm. uh, put those barriers in that actually, st- mm-hmm. and, and it's wide enough to do it, of course, there, mm-hmm. um, do separate the trams from the cars and the, and the trams get a clear run along mm. there. And then later on, Melbourne City Council, which at that time was the other side of the Nicholson Street, put them in on their side as well. So, uh, <laughs> so it's um, yeah, but that, but that, but everywhere else, I mean, it's yeah. The biggest problem with trams and buses is they get caught in the bloody traffic, mm. and that yep. needs to be addressed. Yeah, which you can if if yeah. you know the, if you've ever caught the Smith Street tram versus the Nicholson Street tram, you can see what a difference it makes. One's lightning fast, and yeah, the other takes it, all day. In the freeway struggle in the in the seventies, in fact, um, the government promised that once Alexandra Parade was opened up from being just a residential street to now what's now effectively a freeway, mm. or not a freeway, the way the speed they go, but you know, <laughs> traffic traffic trap, um, that that those north south north south yes north south tram routes that cross would all get priority. Mm-hmm. But obviously it's a bit difficult to work out because mm. 40 years or whatever it is later, they still haven't quite sorted that one out. <laughs> but it's on the way. Don't you worry. It's oh, coming. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, definitely Yeah, it was coming. really... Um, I still remember the conversation we had a couple of months ago where you were talking about Alexandra Parade being a sort of quiet neighbourhood street where children mm. will play. That just seems inconceivable to me. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Well, there were several promises made. There was that... And they promised also, because it had been the median strip, which was wider then, I mean, they've, they've, narrowed, they've put more car road lanes in it continuously, um, it was used where kids played, etc., and people mm. used it as a reservation area out, you know, that went down outside the Fitzroy Pool, etc. Mm. Um, but then they said, well, because you're going to lose some open sp- some space and we're going to give you the, because we're closing it down, the gas and fuel site, which is that building, the one on the corner of Smith Street and Alexander Parade, that big site there. Mm-hmm. But, of course, that never happened either. But, And the government's argument was because we had fought the freeway and not gone along with it, we didn't deserve to get what they'd promised. Oh, so, gosh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was that. Uh, do you want to have a song? Have a yeah, song. Let's, let's play a song okay. while we yeah. dial up at, um, Dave Sweeney. Yeah, we'll have a song and then get, yeah, we'll get Dave. Okay, yeah. yeah.
Journey, Mitchell Woodstock, yeah. Um, and someone from that era, in fact, on the line, <laughs> putting him on the... Uh, Dave Sweeney is the anti-nuclear campaigner at the, as we know, Australian Conservation Foundation. Dave, before we get on to nuclear specifically, I noticed yesterday the government's come out with a new policy and I heard Josh Brynenberg this morning saying that everything's on the table, that's why coal has to be on the table and presumably uranium. Um, but I looked at the table and I didn't see anything there about... Um, a price on coal at all, a price on pollution, um, is that not on the table? Yeah, look, it's a very... Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Eugene. It's a very disappointing uh, statement. It's not surprising. It's very disappointing. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's pretty much more of the same repackaged. It's a strong commitment to coal. It's a strong commitment to continuing with the carbon-based domestic energy. Dave, yeah. Dave, can you move around a bit? We're not getting a great reception at the moment. OK, can you hear us better now? I think that's better there about there, yeah. yeah. OK, sorry about that. Um, yeah, look, it's, dis- it's a disappointing result. Uh, it's a disappointing outcome. It's not surprising, uh, but it is disappointing. It's, uh, you know, it is showing, again, a, a, just a really deep commitment, a, a pretty rusted-on commitment on the part of the government to coal. Um, and you really got to wonder, because there's just been a big slap to the government in Heartland on the weekend, and climate change and the lack of a concerted, consistent, effective response to, you know, climate crisis. Uh, was a big part of that, um, according to all exit polls and all the sort of talk before and after. Um, and so you wonder what it takes when we've got the, the scientific evidence recently with the IPCC pa- uh, panel saying, you know, the urgency of action. And then we've got that couple with a political reminder that you can lose even your heartland if you're not doing things. Um, it's a real concern that they are just not getting the message that we really need to urgently move away from coal. Yeah, um, I think that's, that says it all. Um, look, we, we're on the program specifically because last week a, um, a Queensland senator and Liberal National Party senator called Amanda Stoker wrote a piece in the um, Financial Review. I said I called it a think piece earlier and pointed out it proved she couldn't. But um, she opens it simply by saying Australia must develop a nuclear energy industry. It promises to provide clean and reliable energy from a resource we have in abundance uh, she says that you know, for some, nuclear conjures up these terrible images, shared at Chernobyl, Fukushima, etc. But neither perception reflects the reality of modern nuclear technology. Have, have we missed something here, Dave? Uh, only the fact that uh, they are certainly tenacious on repackaging a failed sector. Um, there's, there's nothing new here. What uh, is, is happening is... Um, there is a renewed, concerted push across a number of stakeholders to explore domestic nuclear power in Australia. Um, and there is also the uh, ever-convenient distraction that nuclear provides when you have a government that doesn't have a consistent or coherent or an effective energy policy. Um, throw up something that doesn't work, that won't, uh, that won't get legs and say the reason power prices are high is because we haven't got the courage to explore this thing that doesn't work. Um, so there's a political strategy, there's also an ideological strategy, and the two are dovetailing with this sort of stuff. The thing that's new, or sort of new, is that now um, the nuclear advocates are starting to uh, not try and say, look, the waste isn't a problem, look, reactor safety isn't a problem, or terrorism isn't a problem, or all these things, Kevin. What they're saying now is, yeah, there were those concerns in the past, but now we've got these small, dinky reactors, which are neat and small and family-friendly, and they don't have any of those problems. Um, 
the, the problem that they face is those reactors aren't there and there are very considerable licensing, economic, uh, safety and assurance issues um, before they ever would be there, if ever. And it's really like uh, this, you know, it's like those people that knock on the door on the weekend and talk about the end of the world with a date and then come back a year later with a revised date. It's a promise based on a complete absence of evidence and an overriding sense of ideology and political expedient to avoid actually addressing fair income energy questions in this country. Hmm. She certainly gives the impression that all that's here now. She says the modern nuclear reactor is small, modular, self-contained and safer than any other energy generation method. It provides flexible generation capacity as it can increase or reduce electricity output to reflect demand. Now, implied in there is that it's safer than, say, sun or wind. Yeah, it's extraordinary. You know, um, it's just an extraordinary statement with a complete lack of any evidence. And if you look at the reality of things, apart from the proven reality and the continuing massive economic as well as human, etc., cost of Fukushima, if you look at evidence and if you track energy, over since the start of this century, so, you know, two decades down the track, Kevin, there's been, you know, if you're looking at additions to the global energy pie... Solar and wind have contributed... Well, their, their contribution has been 750 gigawatts additional contribution into our global mix. Nuclear has been 36. So it's been 5%. Nuclear in this century has contributed 5% of the energy to the global mix that solar and wind are. So what we're seeing with renewable is their deployment is rapidly increasing and their cost is dramatically dropping. And over that same period, well, even sooner, uh, in the period of 2009 to 16, so pretty recently, solar, the cost of, is down 90%. Wind, the cost of, is down 50%. Whereas in every case where there are reactors being built, there are massive cost blowouts, significant time overruns, delays and contest. People welcome renewable. They're embracing them and the market is embracing them, the money's moving that way, the energy production, the rollout, the deployability, the time, the, you know, the rate of investment, the time it takes to recoup the energy and the money that it costs to set this thing up, absolutely blitz nuclear. Nuclear is just not in the game. It's a significant energy contributor because of the existing assets. But to go further, to talk new generation, to talk new build, is really it's worse than fantasy it's actually a really dangerous distraction to the real challenges we face mm. and um dave do you have any idea um of what of what if any uh, effect on kind of public opinion these kind of articles are having like are people uh reconsidering um nuclear in a new light yeah that's a really good question because that's what these articles are about they're, mm. they're, they're, they're about trying to uh act as if uh, and positioning as if if you are opposed to nuclear, then you're fear-filled. All you know about nuclear, all you think is Homer Simpson and Fukushima. And it's trying to say that we are the level-headed, measured experts, Eugenia, we're the ones, we have the information. But it's not. If you look at Amanda Stoker or any one of these scores of articles, they are heavy on adjectives and light on numbers. The numbers are working solidly against the nuclear industry. So... Are they having an effect? Difficult to measure. Is there intention to have an effect? Absolutely. And we're seeing everywhere 
this sort of quiet attempt to chip away at, uh, at um, you know, in particular, what annoys um, these uh, these proponents is the fact that there is, under a piece of legislation, the RPANS Act, the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Act, which is the federal legislation about the federal nuclear regulator. It has that... Um, it has that um, nuclear power is uh, is uh, unlawful. So RPANs have to follow, um, you know, the law uh, and the in both the environmental and nuclear licensing laws. It says that we're not having nuclear power. Now these uh, parties are saying that that blanket ban must go. But what they're trying to do basically is just say. That, that the existence of a long-standing law is the reason for all complications on energy policy. And it really suits them have to have this as a political distraction because commentators can jump on it. They can make promises. They can say, well, if you're angry about power bills, maybe we should go nuclear because it's cheap, even though it is not. It is profoundly expensive. Um, and so it serves that political purpose of being a distraction. It's not like we've been in government for years and we have failed to address the most fundamental issue of reducing carbon, reducing and ending dependency on coal and transitioning to a clean energy future. Now, that's not the problem. The problem is that there's a legislative impasse on block on nuclear power, which is costly and doesn't work and is unpopular and creates waste and is a terrorist target and 50,000 other dot points. That's the problem, that we're not allowed to build a nuclear plant, not that we have been inept, incompetent and beholden to the fossil fuel lobby for decades. Yeah, right. <laughs> not a bad point, David. Um, <laughs> she, 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 on that point, she does say SMRs, which are these small modular reactors, are self-contained, require very little human input and depend for their safety on physical laws rather than mechanical or human reliability, and that's why they're so safe, apparently. What's all that mean? Well, it, the way it appears, the way it's sort of constructed, the SMR stuff, is that you go down to the local hire joint and you pick up a generator, you put it on the back of the ute, you drop it out bush for the door. And it's just, it's, it's really uh, a very reductionist approach to this technology. What they basically are is the idea of um, uh, a, a nuclear submarine, you know? So you stay underwater for three years and you run it through a small reactor. So why don't we just pull out that small reactor technology and run it above ground? And then you say that it's all OK because it's small and it's contained and it's neat and it's clean and it's in a shiny box. Um, it doesn't work like that for a range of reasons. And I suppose, don't take my word for it, but like Westinghouse, which is a very significant nuclear, um, nuclear uh, agency and... Um, they have been building reactors. They have been building reactors for donkeys. They have been pushing this industry for donkeys, and they worked for a decade on SMR, and then they abandoned them in 2014. They said these are not stacking up on a whole range of criteria. So the, there, there are um, international agencies and there are international companies working to design SMRs and to look for new versions of them. Um, and they face those really significant problems, less so technical problems, more problems about licensing and about economies of scale. Since 
Fukushima, which as much as nuclear proponents might want to say that in the past it's not, there is an understandable increase in expectation from community and sensitivity to that expectation from regulators that there is a higher standard applied to nuclear technology. Now, that leads to increased licensing expectation and the SMRs are not clearing that hurdle. The other thing is that they are... The, the thing that makes nuclear... People talk about nuclear being cheap. It's not. It's the most expensive establishment. The only thing cheap about nuclear is its actual fuel cost. Its actual fuel cost, the cost of uranium, is very cheap. It's, it's about 3% of the reactor's operating cost, which compared to, say, like burning coal or burning oil or gas or anything is considerably less. Every other aspect of generation of electricity by nuclear is not cheap, it's expensive. And they're saying that this will be cheap, but it's not. The only reason existing ones can even hold some sort of credible argument about price is because of the sheer scale, whereas these small proposed modular reactors are small and isolated, which makes them boutique and highly, highly expensive, let alone the fact that they don't commercially exist. So if we're talking about a situation where our globe needs to dramatically address carbon pollution, and we do, um, and then the answer of the Australian federal government or people in it is that let's explore a technology that is unlawful, unpopular and non-existent, then you really wonder, have they got the message of the urgency? And you'd have to say they haven't. And that, looping back to how we started, Kevin, was reflected again in their announcement yesterday. Mm. Um, could you tell me a bit more about these small modular reactors, Dave? Like, what's the what's the idea for their use? Are these the small? Odd, yeah. Yeah. The idea for their use is that you would have them in places uh, where there's a. Uh, the idea on paper makes sense. You would have them in places where there is a, um, a strong energy need, but limited uh, existing infrastructure. Uh, so, like for example, you'd have them in, in a mine site um, where it's remote and far away from poles and wires. You'd have them in a regional community where uh, electricity supply might be uh, erratic or uncertain. So, you identify areas, uh, generally areas that are either uh, rapidly expanding in where the, the new population need and energy need exceeds existing capacity or areas that are remote and removed from existing capacity and you drop one of these things in and it becomes like the local swimming pool. It becomes mm-hmm. like the, the asset in the community that makes things happen. And like lots of people, lots of listeners will have been to mining towns and there's the generator plant, you know, and it might be a K out of the town to keep the noise um, noise down and it just runs all the time and it keeps the lights on, the operating happening, the processing plan happening, etc, etc. Now, at the moment, these are, uh, by and large, uh, powered by diesel. Dirty, expensive, uh, complicated to ship in, etc, etc. The industry argument runs, well, why wouldn't you replace these with small modular reactors? Which, on the first cut, yeah, well, why wouldn't you, apart from safety and a thousand other reasons? The, the, uh, the, the, the comeback point is, well, one is because they're not there and the need is, and the second is that more and more now, mining companies, remote area towns, Aboriginal communities, lots of places are seeing that, yeah, we need our own independent, standalone, if you like, uh, independently sourced and proofed uh, energy source, and it is actually better to do it by renewables. And, you know, the, the question now 
isn't so much how do we generate energy, it's how do we store it and how do we deploy it. And, and you know, so the, the movement, the change now in the efficiency of, of particularly solar efficiency in, in regional Australia and the change now of battery technology, the increased efficiencies and, and the longevity of the energy uh, charge being held is really knocking further out this SMR rationale. So, like, the little reactors, which don't exist, are facing the same problems or many of the same problems as the big reactors, which do and have not succeeded and have not been, uh, you know, able to, to um, win both public and market support. Mm. And, and what, are, uh, what, are the, what are the options for renewables to fulfil the same role? Yeah, look, they're, they're very, very, they're very significant. And uh, there's more and more places. There's many mine sites in Australia doing it. There's many, like I said, many Aboriginal communities now. They might retain the old tech, the diesel tech, as a backup just in case, but you don't fully decommission it. But there's more and more places, and particularly, uh, you know, they're moving into solar and then solar battery storage, and that is meeting the needs. And what we're seeing, like I said before, the, the, the cost of... Um, renewable is and particularly solar down 90 percent in the last 10 years um, mm. the costs are, are dropping the efficiencies are increasing and the if you like that more intangible point of the public acceptance the likability you know people I, I travel a fair bit and I see many people who are very very happy much happier that they're now living you know a K down the road is the solar plant rather than the diesel plant and I reckon if you then went up to them and said, now we want it to be a new segment, um, that unhappiness would shrink pretty quickly, pretty significantly. Yeah. D- Dave, um, given that, um, quote, this is safer than any other energy generation method, can we assume that this now generates electricity but absolutely no nuclear waste, whatever? No, not at all. Um, oh. we, we can't assume either of those. It's not commercially deployed. There is, it's uh, facing significant licensing. SMRs are facing significant licensing issues in the US. And in the US, the licensing has been uh, traditionally pretty gentle and pretty favourable to the nuclear industry. It has, like I said, um, got more stringent and more robust post-Fukushima, but still, it's still industry-friendly and they're still not clearing the bar. So it's it's uh, a long way from an assured technology. It's a very long way from a commercially deployed technology. Um, and then there's many other problems there, still the problems of nuclear waste. Because it's a smaller unit, it's a smaller volume, but that, um, that still is a fundamental problem. Waste is a problem. Safety is a problem. The potential to be a pre-deployed terrorist target is a problem. Um, there's a range of concerns here, Kevin, that haven't been addressed. So, like, it sounds good. You know, here's this light, small thing. We take it off, we turn it on, and it runs for five years, and, and you know, Robert's your radioactive al- uncle. Um, but, um, yeah. Is that a saying in the business days? <laughs> yeah, it is. A radioactive relative, really, is genuine. Um, <laughs> then, you keep, then you keep the three R's. But... Um, it, they're not there. The, the other thing, though, is that this is also happening against this global sort of um, this global last-ditch sort of defence, ring fencing, and defence of um, of the wider nuclear industry. Like we're seeing in the first half of December, 
And you're, again, you know, city limits on the money ahead of the pace and flagging an issue. And my prediction would be keep an eye open for more Amanda Stokers and more of these sort of commentaries in, in, in the first half of this December and running into Christmas because um, there is the crop, the conference of parties on climate change in Poland in the first half of December. There will be a concerted nuclear push to hold the line and the best way, you know, the best form of defence is attack. They will attack by saying that we need SMRs and SMRs can bring this home, etc., etc. And only the reluctance of people who are ill-informed, fear-ridden, etc. That's the impediment. If you leave it to us, technical experts will deliver um, as we have in the past, you know, and as they have in the past is volumes, high volumes of, of, of radioactive waste with no means to treat or manage that we, you know, assured forms of disposal. It's high cost of energy. It's energy that brings with it massive impacts on country, on communities, on civil rights. It's energy that brings with it enormous security considerations, and that line is used in the industry of pre-deployed terrorist targets. And in times of conflict, you know, one of the things that is a real fear for international agencies and relief organisations and all the ones that do the strategic planning around conflict is one of the first questions they ask is, where are there nuclear installations? Where are they? And then they do mapping around what happens if. And we've seen in the conflict with uh, Russia and Ukraine, nuclear uh, facilities being targeted as uh, as pre-deployed, um, not just for their, their not just for the uh, aspect of knocking out a power source, but also for the aspect of having a pre-deployed nuclear weapon and the threat that that brings. So we've got a real choice now. We know we've got this fundamental driving issue where we need to get away from carbon. We need to drop that significantly and quickly. And now we've got a choice. You know, do we do we faff around? We will put our statement locking ourselves into carbon and then waving this sort of illusion of a nuclear uh, future as if it's going to save us? Or do we just say, OK, this is it. It's the point now where we embrace a clean energy future. We stop fueling and stop fooling around with uh, coal and with nuclear. We transition out of coal and we don't start nuclear. We're not there in Australia. We don't open that door and we move rapidly, efficiently, on a war footing style to being a promoter, a user, a producer, exporter of nuclear, uh, of renewable energy and renewable energy technology. So it's really that simple and all this sort of stuff about SMRs, it all sounds like it's too good to be true. And Amanda Stoker and all the rest, quite frankly, it is. Mm. Amanda, of course, puts down the, the, the Intercontinental Panel Report, Intergovernmental Panel Report. She says it's um, released another of its doom and gloom reports claiming climate disaster is nigh. We could debate the merits, etc. So she puts that down, but that just sums up where she's at, I guess. But just to finish up, Dave, um, the campaign to stop nuclear waste dump in South Australia, how's that going? Yeah, it's very interesting. I've just come back from three or four days uh, you know, out and, uh, uh, talking with communities um, uh, in South Australia, Kevin, and um, it is it is moving along. It's hard. You know, a lot of listeners will know that the federal government is targeting two areas, Kimber near west of Port Augusta and in the Flinders Ranges for a site for a, a national site to bury low level and store high level till they work out what to do with it sometime unspecified in the next... 100 years, and there's a lot of people in those communities that are saying, hang on, I'm not signing up for that. Now, where it is now is the federal government has been pushing, pushing, pushing that it will make a decision. This is uh, Senator uh, Canavan, 
it will make a decision by the end of the calendar year. It's now looking at the degree of community opposition and, in particular, legal action against a proposed uh, sort of community ballot to assess community mood. There's a very restricted ballot and people have been saying we need to broaden it and the government said no and now it's in the uh, listed for discussion or listed for a hearing in the... Um, in the South Australian Supreme Court at the end of January. So it looks like there'll be no decision this year. It will lead on and bleed on into an election context. And what we're saying for both of the major parties, the Greens are already there and some of the crossbenchers already see the, 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 the significance and the sense of this. We're saying that as two major parties, there is actually no need to rush on this, but there's every need to take the time and get it right. And there needs to be what we've never had, Kevin, a fair income independent assessment of the full range of management options. Now, the, you know, that's the message that we are pushing and the community is strongly behind that and we're slowing down the government's push. But, you know, it is really hard. You know, Aaron Daddy Roy says the state doesn't get tired. Those communities are tired. We just need to keep building support and building awareness and, and saying that this is not a question for, like, an isolated community in South Australia. It's a question of national responsibility of an industrial waste that needs to be isolated from people and planet for 10,000 years. Matt Canavan, you will come and go. All of us will come and go. That stuff needs to be handled seriously. Let's hope Matt's sooner than us. Um, <laughs> Dave, we have to finish there, but look, thanks. And I think you did a, I think you did do a fair job to indicate that you do a, disagree with what Amanda wrote, but um, and, he, and did great homework last night. It's the theme <laughs> that we're drawing out of all of this. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you got that take-home message. Yeah, we, <laughs> we, we picked it up, subtle as you were. Um, okay, Dave Sweeney there. Thanks, Dave, for your time. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay. Dave's Dave, of course, from the Australian um, Conservation Foundation, their anti-nuclear campaigner. And, uh, and next week, Eugenia, mm. we're going to be looking at um, community gardens in public housing estates. And also, we hope to have a look at the uh, destruction, the terrible damage that's been done to Stony Creek by that recent dreadful fire. So they're the issues next week. It's a fourth Wednesday and um, and you can uh, yeah, you can thank Idwin for doing a wonderful job keeping us on air. Thank you so much, Idwin. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure.